This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia is helping drive 5G for America. Powered by Nokia Bell Labs, our innovations accelerate the nation's future. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. We're doing a listener survey to assess our whole suite of podcasts, and we'd love to get your feedback. To help us, please go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word, WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and how we can better serve you. Again, WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Good morning. I'm James Holman from the Washington Post, and this is the Daily 202 for Tuesday, July 21st. In today's news, President Trump threatens to deploy federal agents to Chicago, New York, and other cities led by Democrats. Michael Cohen alleges in a sworn affidavit that Trump made violently racist and anti-Semitic comments. And hundreds are camping out in Oklahoma's unemployment lines. But first, the big idea. Early this morning, European leaders agreed to a vast spending plan to rescue the economies of coronavirus-ravaged countries, overcoming deep-seated divisions on the extent to which rich European nations should commit to helping poorer ones. The deal on a $2.1 trillion EU budget and rescue package came after a marathon four days, literally 90 hours of grinding discussions among members of the 27-nation bloc. Faced with the prospect of the worst economic blow since World War II, they hammered out a compromise. Our Brussels bureau chief, Michael Birnbaum, and our Berlin bureau chief, Loveday Morris, have been bird-dogging what have been really fascinating negotiations. Overall fresco breakfasts, midday French fry breaks, and late-night haggling, the European leaders fought with one another using increasingly bitter rhetoric. But then they cut a deal. The main disagreement was between the leaders of a handful of self-described frugal countries, the Netherlands, Sweden, Austria, Denmark, and Finland, and their peers over how much money should go to hard-hit countries like Italy and Spain and how much oversight donor countries ought to have over how funds are spent. In crises, the EU has typically offered loans, not grants, and demanded economic reform in return. The frugals, as the fiscally responsible countries called themselves, wanted to keep it that way. The others didn't, of course offering a vision that would be a small step closer to a federal European Union that more closely resembles the United States, where rich states subsidize poor ones. To appease them, the portion of grants in the deal kept getting trimmed down, and the objectors were granted billions and billions more in rebates from their contributions to the shared EU budget. There were tough trade-offs. Because less money was then coming in, the Europeans are making deep cuts to projects relating to healthcare and refugees. In a big win for Hungary and Poland, stipulations that tied access to funds to upholding the rule of law were rolled back in the final draft. Both countries have been censured by Brussels as their leaders have moved against their political opponents and stripped the independence of the judicial system. French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel teamed up back in May to propose $570 billion in grants to respond to the contagion, with the German leader abandoning her long-held caution about handing her taxpayers' money to poor countries without asking for it to be repaid. Merkel called it a one-off, but a lot of analysts have dubbed it Europe's Hamiltonian moment, a burst of centralization that would forever hand more power to Brussels. The need to agree on an ambitious plan to react to the crisis drew the leaders together in person 
on Friday, despite the risks, as they attempted the biggest and highest level gathering of world leaders since the pandemic largely grounded the world to a halt four months ago now. They had met by video conference from their capitals, but diplomats say there's little substitute for face-to-face discussions to resolve sharp disagreements. Leaders began meeting on Friday with careful adherence to social distancing rules. Many wore masks. They went in a vast room built to seat 330 people. Merkel was even photographed admonishing Bulgaria's leader for allowing his mask to slip off his nose. But then the masks started to come off as the discussions devolved and leaders, ambassadors and advisors huddled closer and closer together to examine budget figures and new formulas. Some smaller negotiation sessions took place on outdoor terraces and balconies where the risk of viral spread is lower. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Root and his frugalist allies said countries like Italy and Spain are to blame for pre-pandemic economic difficulties that left them struggling to pay their way out of the current crisis. Root, who's up for election next year and whose tough stance is good politics back home, leaned hard into his bad cop approach with some accompanying theatrics. As tensions rose late Sunday evening, Macron, the French leader, thumped his hand angrily on the table and screamed at leaders, including Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurtz, whom he derided for leaving the room to take phone calls, even though other leaders were speaking. It got tense, but then they figured it out. Merkel has been increasingly thinking about her legacy through all of this. She's set to retire next year after 16 years in power as undisputably the most powerful leader in Europe and one of the greatest statesmen or stateswomen of our time. Her careful style has made her a deal maker who will not be easily replaced, leading some to suggest that she's trying to hand more power to Brussels to keep the balance of power after she's gone. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Department of Homeland Security officials say they're making preparations to deploy federal agents to Chicago while President Trump threatens to surge U.S. law enforcement personnel into other Democratic-led cities. Trump made that pronouncement as he defended his administration's use of force in Portland, Oregon, where agents have clashed every night with protesters and made arrests from unmarked cars Calling the unrest there worse than Afghanistan, it's not. Trump's rhetoric escalated tensions with Democratic mayors and governors who have criticized the presence of federal agents on U.S. streets. Trump said he's looking at doing the same thing in Chicago and New York and, quote, other cities run by Democrats. DHS has been making preparations to flood Chicago with up to 150 ICE agents as part of a show of force in an election year. Normally, politics is not supposed to drive law enforcement decisions, but here it is. In Portland, federal agents remain to defend the Mark Hatfield Courthouse and other nearby federal buildings that protesters have treated as a proxy for the Trump administration. In response to the president calling Portland protesters anarchists and insinuating that local officials were afraid of them, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, a Democrat, said this is a democracy and not a dictatorship and decried the feds for acting like secret police abducting people. Acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf then went on Fox News to attack local leaders, saying, quote, I don't need invitations by mayors or governors to do our job. We're going to do that whether they like us there or not. DHS officials say their tactical teams in Portland have been flummoxed by protesters using black block tactics to disguise their identities and working in coordination to confuse agents. One official says protesters over the weekend arrived to the clashes armed with leaf blowers, using them to to disperse tear gas and direct irritants back at federal agents who were firing them. 
Meanwhile, DHS has authorized its personnel to begin collecting information on protesters who they say threaten to damage or destroy public memorials and statues, regardless of whether they are on federal property. That's a significant expansion of legal authorities that have historically been constrained to protect landmarks from terrorist attacks. Someone leaked a secret memo to our reporter, Shane Harris, which refers to apparently ongoing federal intelligence gathering operations against American civilians. Number two, a book manuscript that's been drafted by Trump's longtime ex-lawyer and consigliere, Michael Cohen, alleges that Trump often privately made, quote, virulently racist comments about Barack Obama and the late South African leader Nelson Mandela, in addition to disparaging Jewish people. Cohen's legal team says that his home confinement was revoked because of his plan to put out that book before the election. A new court filing contends that Attorney General Bill Barr sent Cohen back to prison this month to stop him from talking. The filings from Cohen's attorneys seek his immediate release from federal custody following his rearrest on July 9th, less than two months after he was allowed to serve the remainder of his sentence at home because of the coronavirus. The lawsuit alleges that Cohen's First Amendment rights were violated when he was detained at a federal courthouse in Manhattan during a meeting with probation officers who asked him to sign a gag order prohibiting him from speaking to the media at all or publishing a book until the sentence was concluded. Cohen's lawyers say the document he was told he needed to sign to avoid going back to jail was written uniquely for him by the administration. The Justice Department says Cohen was taken back into custody because he refused to wear an ankle monitor. That's a claim his legal team strongly disputes. Number three, John Jolly never thought he'd be sleeping in his car awaiting unemployment benefits. But there he was. The owner of a once successful advertising agency taking a sweaty nap in a Subaru station wagon in a Tulsa Convention Center parking lot at 1.45 a.m. the other day. The pandemic sent his business into a free fall, and now John wanted to be the first in line for an unemployment claims event beginning in five hours. He barely dozed, afraid that if he fell into a deep sleep, he would miss the early morning handout of tickets for appointments with state agents. There would be just 400 tickets handed out for that day's event. When those ran out, there would be 400 more for appointments the next day. In Oklahoma, one of our poorest states, unemployment, which reached a record 14.7% back in April, has pushed many to the point of desperation, with savings depleted, cars repossessed, and homes sold for cash. The backlog has created unprecedented delays. Thousands of people's claims have been pending for months. The Oklahoma Employment Security Commission staff has tried to combat these delays by holding mega processing events at large arenas in Oklahoma City and Tulsa with masks and social distancing required. So far, they say they've managed to help 6,200 people. But dozens more sat in that parking lot overnight with John Jolly, unable to get their questions answered through the unemployment agency's overloaded phone system. Some said they were notified that their claim was denied as fraudulent. Shelly Zumwalt, the interim director of Oklahoma's unemployment agency, told my colleague Annie Gowan that the state's systems are using, get this, they're using a mainframe computer from 1978 and that it was quickly and totally overwhelmed by the volume of claims. 1978. Many who showed up at the Tulsa Convention Center are navigating government assistance for the first time. Sarah Miller, 29 years old, a single mother of three, was told not to come back to her job as a nursing home aide after she experienced symptoms consistent with COVID-19 in March. Her unemployment claim has been pending since April 12th. She says she's not the kind of person who would ever 
normally seek any help or handouts from the government. But she says she needs to feed her kids. And she says she's run out of all her other options. As the number of infected Americans surges to record highs and as Trump's approval rating plummets, the president announced yesterday that starting today, he's going to resume his 5 p.m. daily coronavirus briefings and get involved again in a hands-on way with the crisis. In a dark portent for U.S. movie theaters, Warner Brothers yesterday postponed the release of the Christopher Nolan movie Tenet. With cases surging, no major new films are likely to be released in our country until at least September, probably later. And Canadian truckers are increasingly scared to enter the United States at all. Dan Carson, an Ontario truck driver who has stopped making regular runs across the Detroit border, says Americans don't seem to be taking the coronavirus seriously enough. He doesn't trust the American government to do the right thing, and he just isn't willing to put his family at risk. That's a remarkable indictment by our northern neighbors. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, July 21st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.